Matthew 27, verse 62, through Matthew 28, verse 15. Next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly, tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going... Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this reading of your word. We thank you, O Father, for this life-changing, life-transforming story of which your word contains. O Father, we do ask that you would bless us this morning, that, O Lord, you would apply this word to each of our hearts. O Father, for some of us, this story is so familiar that perhaps we have become, in some sense, blind to it. So, Father, I pray that you would freshen our understanding and freshen our perspective of this story. For others of us, this story is new. Father, I pray that you would be pleased to give eyes that see and ears that hear, that we would see the implications of what has taken place. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. I've already hinted in uh, what we call the pastoral prayer of this morning's service, uh, the uh, overarching theme this morning of this text that I really want to convey comes from a passage of Scripture that unfortunately in many circles has become somewhat cliche, and the passage I have in mind is Romans 8.28. It's a travesty that in in today's um, culture in many circles that... uh, a truth as precious as this 
Namely, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Uh, could become trivial or trite. And of course, it becomes trivial and trite. It becomes cliche when we use it as a catch-all phrase, uh, when we can't think of anything to say, uh, when we're coming alongside those who are hurting. And um, as well intended as that often is, uh, unfortunately, this verse has suffered from that kind of thing. But nevertheless, think of the truth that's here. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. I think it finds its greatest expression in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If we were to get together in a, in a, in a think tank, if you will, and we were to come up with a crime that is greater than the crime that was committed when Christ was executed on the cross, would we be able to surpass that? Absolutely not. It's very clearly the greatest crime that has ever been committed. It's impossible to, to, to commit a crime greater than that. Uh, the execution of the perfect and holy, just and righteous Son of God. And that's what we've been studying, but we also know that out of this greatest of crimes, God has accomplished the greatest of good, hasn't He? For those who love, those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, correct? Matthew's story, of course, does not end with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, nor does Mark's, nor does Luke's, nor does John's. Uh, they continue on, as we saw last week, to discuss the burial of Christ. And last week we looked at the significance of the burial of Christ. And, of course, they continue on to discuss the resurrection of Christ. And the central theme in all four of the Gospels, of course, is the fact that Christ is no longer on the cross. He's no longer in the grave, but He is risen. He is risen. He is alive. As we've been singing this morning, He is alive. He is alive. But when we study each individual gospel, we'll notice that there's a particular emphasis of each gospel, and Matthew is no exception. You'll notice by the text that was taken this morning, we've taken a pretty large text, verse 62 of Matthew 27 through Matthew 28, 15. You'll notice that the resurrection story, if you could think of it as a book that's put up on the shelf, uh, there's the story of the guard being set at the tomb on one side of the, of the book, if you will, and then there's the report of the guard being put on the other side, kind of like bookends on a bookshelf, if you will. What's the significance of that? Matthew is the only one who records these, uh, these uh, particular details. Of course, they were in the minds of the other uh, gospel writers, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they were given other emphasis. So, uh, what I would like to do this morning is take a look at that. What, what is Matthew communicating to us? Now, we won't be able to go into it all, but uh, what I, the, the, the theme that I would like to take this morning is that uh, we have these sinister plots in verses 62 through 66. We have another sinister plot in verses 11 through 15 in Matthew 28. And what is... What is Matthew showing us? What is the Holy Spirit showing us? That even these sinister plots are actually working together for the good of those who love God. Let's take, let's take a look. 
In verse 62, we read next day. Kind of an odd. You almost think there should be a, 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 an article in front of it. There should be a the, uh, the, the next day. But it says next day. That is after the day of preparation. Uh, the day of preparation being Friday, the day of preparing for the Judean Sabbath, which would be on Saturday, right? Okay, the day, the day after Friday, the day after Jesus is crucified and buried, the chief priests and the Pharisees gather before Pilate. And they, said, they say to Pilate, remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. And we could stop right here, actually, while we're thinking of the context of Matthew's gospel. We probably should stop, stop right here. And we should ask this question. We should, we should pause for a moment and think about the effects that Christ's death has had. Uh, last week, we were looking at Joseph of Arimathea, who appears uh, in verse 57 of, of, of Matthew 27. We, we know, know very much about him. He appears there. Uh, and after this story, we don't hear any more about him. But John in his gospel tells us that he was a uh, closet disciple, if you will. He was a man who was a disciple of Jesus, but he was kind of in a closet with his faith for fear of the Jews. The other gospel writers tell us that not only was he a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, the group that, uh, that really masterminded the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, but he was a respected member of that group. However, he had never consented towards the actions and never consented in the actions towards Jesus. So here's this man who's in the closet with his faith, and then along comes the crucifixion of Jesus. What effect does that have on him? Out of the closet he comes, and he does something that's almost unthinkable. Being a member of the Sanhedrin, he goes to Pilate. He's a wealthy man. He has access to these political leaders. And he asks for the body of Jesus. For what purpose? That he might give him a proper, proper burial. Not only a proper burial, but an upscale burial. And we can't imagine how much this infuriated the rest of the Sanhedrin. He doesn't seem to care. I'm sure he probably cares. But you see the effect that the death of Christ has had on him? And as we come to verses 62 through 66, we see that the death of Christ has also had an effect on the, those who oppose Christ. <laughs> I think they probably thought, you know, as soon as we get Jesus crucified, this whole thing's going to be over with. You know, now we can rest secure in our little positions that we love so dearly. And the interesting thing is, no, <laughs> they're actually quite anxious. What are they anxious about? They got this nagging little thing that Jesus said is bothering them. It, Jesus said that on the third day he would rise. It, it's, it's bothering them so much that they go to Pilate on the Sabbath. Interestingly enough, the, the disciples have forgotten about it. They, they've literally forgotten about the promise. They, they were unable really to comprehend the promise. And I think in one respect, you know, a lot of commentators really, really barrel down on the disciples. What are they thinking? Why didn't they remember the promise? Jesus said he would rise on the third day. And I, I don't want to get too hard on the disciples. I'll tell you why. It's because of the emotional content that's taking place. They love Jesus. When we lose somebody we love, we don't think clearly. 
We don't think clearly at all. And they're caught in the, in the, in the fact that they've lost the, the one who they thought was going to liberate them. They don't understand. Caught in all of this. But not the opposition. Not the cold opposition. They're being nagged. They're being anxious. They go to Pilate. They order the... They want to they make this, the tomb as secure as they can. They're trying to ensure that Jesus stays in that tomb. And I don't think that they, maybe they realize it, maybe they don't realize it. But in essence, they're trying to thwart the promise of Christ. Christ promised to rise. And we, we, could, think of, we could think of Pilate, you know. You imagine how Pilate's responding here. They say, you guys want to do What? You want me to dispatch a guard so you can do what? So you can go out to the cemetery and be sure that this man from Galilee doesn't get loose? You can almost imagine the, perhaps the ridicule and the laughter. Well, you have a guard. Guys, go make it as secure as you can. There's certainly an application here, you know. The application is really easy. There's no pace for the wicked. There simply can be no peace for those who reject Jesus. You know, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, you know, that verse is really, really clear uh, where it says, for, you know, basically for those who reject Christ, there is no rest, not during the day and not during the night. And if we made application to our culture, I mean, look at our culture. It's been suggested by many that the future historians will look back on this present day and this present hour and look back at this as the age of anxiety. I think there's a lot of truth to that. It's hard to say what future historians are going to write about us, but I think they're probably, I think they're probably safe to correct. Is this is the age of anxiety. Well, of course, our culture, the further it gets away from Christ, the more anxious it's going to have to become. We could say a lot more about that. But back to our text here. Uh, off they go with their guard of soldiers. They go to the tomb. They seal the stone in verse 66. They would have sealed it by taking a cord or a rope and putting it around uh, the, the, uh, the stone uh, that's rolled in place. And uh, interestingly enough, the ESV study Bible has this little picture in it of a particular, t of a common tomb. Uh, some of you have those Bibles and have seen the picture uh, of, a, of a tomb. I think it's really helpful to see that, of your typical tomb that was cut out of the rock. And there was a, a, a hole uh, cut in the, the stone, if you will, and then, uh, you, it was a big enough hole that you could kind of get inside, and there were various chambers in there where you could put more than one body. And outside of the, uh, of the hole, there was a little trough, if you will, that was, that was cut out of the stone, and there was a large circular stone that was cut, and it was cut in a certain way that it would rest down in that trough and that it would lean against the bank so that all you had to do was roll the stone in front of the opening. And once the stone is rolled in front of the opening, then to seal it, they would take a rope or a cord, they would put it around the crack, and then they would take wax or clay and smear that over the rope. And to make it official, they would take some kind of official stamp and they would stamp it in either the clay or the wax. So that if anyone tampered with it, of course, they might be able to get the cord back in, they might be able to get the clay back on, but they would have no stamp to mark the, uh, the stamp, and they would know it's been messed with. So they seal it up and they post a guard in front of it. Not just any guard, a guard of Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers 
took their tasks and assignments seriously. Uh, you, you left your post. Uh, you went to sleep on your post. You didn't take your post seriously. That could be a capital offense. The Romans didn't screw around, not with their military. I think uh, I read somewhere for 700 years, the Roman army lost a few battles here and there, but they never lost a war. 700 years. So they've got their guard out there. They've got their, their tomb sealed. Okay. Let's hold that thought for a minute. Let's go to Matthew 28. Now we have another time frame. Now after the Sabbath, that is after Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that is Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, we keep reading about these women, and I haven't said anything about them. I've been reserving my comments till right now. Have you noticed we keep, at each step of the way, we keep reading about these women who are always there? If you back up to verse 55, while Jesus is dying on the cross, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee. If you look at verse 61, uh, as Jesus is being buried, uh, there the women are. They knew where the tomb was because they were there. And now, uh, at the first opportunity where it's lawful, it would have been unlawful for them to go to the graveside during the Sabbath. But as soon as it is lawful, where are they? They're at the graveside. Well, they know where the graveside is because they were there when Jesus was being buried. We see the remarkable faithfulness of these women. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, he points out each step of the way. He goes, well, there's, there's the women, where's the 11? There's the women, where are the 11? There's the women, where are the 11? Well, of course, we know John, the Apostle John was there as Jesus was dying. We know he was present. Where are the rest? Well, we know where the rest are. They've scattered. They've been scared. They scattered. The prophecy, remember the prophecy of Zechariah? Jesus told him when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. They've all scattered. Well, here are the women. They come to the tomb, and they make a great discovery. Verse 2, there was a great earthquake. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Here we see the guards see this angel. Actually, we know from the other gospel accounts there were two angels. Matthew's only mentioning one of them. And these guards, these, these war-torn and battle-hardened soldiers see, see these angels, and they're terrified. Uh, they're so terrified that they're froze, uh, paralyzed uh, in fear. In verse 5, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. The angel knows the, the hard motives of the women. Uh, don't be afraid. We know why you're here. You're here because you love Jesus. And then verse 6, he makes the great announcement. Jesus is not here. He is risen, as he said. Notice how gentle uh, the angel is reminding the women of Christ's promise. He had said it more than once. He would said it over and over again. They would rise on the third day. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said he would rise. Come, see the place where he lay. And then verse 7, go quickly. The angel charges the, the women, go quickly. Tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. And of course, Galilee will be the scene of the very final uh, 
section of Matthew's gospel. And Galilee is significant. Those of you who have been around for most of this study will remember there for a while when Jesus was doing all this ministry in Galilee. Uh, you remember all those times where he was crossing across the Sea of Galilee? He would, he would do some things in Capernaum, then he'd cross the Sea of Galilee over to the other side, then he would cross the Sea. It seemed like he was just forever crossing the Sea of Galilee. Much of his ministry took place up in Galilee. And that's, of course, where he will go and meet the disciples. So the women are charged to go and tell the disciples. In verse 8, they depart quickly from the tomb uh, with fear and great joy. You see that phrase? Fear and great joy. If your mind is like mine and you read things like that, uh, you pause and you say, wait a second, how can, we, how can we experience fear and great joy? If you're experiencing joy, I would think there'd be no fear. Wouldn't fear disturb joy to the point that it would no longer be joyous? And what does joy do to fear? Doesn't it drive fear away? But here the women are told that they're, that we're told that the women go off in this admixture of, of fear and joy. And I, I think the only way to understand this actually is to experience it. I have an experience in my own life that I'll share with you that uh, I, I can say that I actually experienced both at the same time. Uh, very, very early on, as I was trying to figure out the gospel, trying to figure out what God was doing uh, in my heart, stirring my heart to want to seek Him. I, at one point, I remember thinking, I really, I'm reading all these things about God. I'm reading all these things about Christ. I'm reading all these things about the Lord. But I kind of say it's always about Him. I, I don't really feel like I've met Him. I don't really feel like I know Him. And I, I, I had this book that was written many years ago that I'd come across, written by a pastor named Andrew Murray. Maybe some of you have heard of Andrew Murray. He's written a lot of things that are helpful. He's written some things that maybe aren't as helpful. But at the time, I, I didn't know the difference. I didn't know who Andrew Murray was. And I'm reading this little book, and he's, he's basically expounding Scripture in the little book. And I would read the book, and then I would read the Scripture, and I'd think, well, this kind of makes sense. What Andrew Murray was suggesting, what he was telling his readers to do, was to go into God's presence and demand that He reveal Himself to you. And I remember thinking... Wow, I don't know that I should go into God's presence and make too many demands. I, I really don't think that that's something that I really ought to be doing. I very, was very shy about that. But I kept reading his book, and I'm like, okay, it makes sense. So I kind of went, went like this. I was like, um, uh, oh, uh, Father, um, I don't know that I ought to be doing this, but this old preacher is telling me, and I didn't know he was an old preacher. I didn't know nothing about him. This preacher is telling me that I, I really ought to kind of ask you to kind of... Um, if you'd be so pleased as to reveal yourself to me. And I don't know, it's, nothing really happened. And, um, but I kept looking at the book. I kept looking at the scripture passages. And as I did this, I became more confident. I, mean, I could see where he's coming from. So as time went by, and this was always at night after everyone had gone to bed, as time went by, I'd say, okay, um, okay Father, you know, it turned into, Father, I really want... I really want to know you. I really want you to reveal yourself to me. And on one occasion, on one night, the Father was pleased to answer that prayer in such a way that, I mean, I, I experience God's presence like the rest of you in different times. I always experience His presence here on Sunday morning. I look forward to the experience of His presence. But on this particular occasion, I really had such a strong sense of His presence that I was immediately filled with joy but it was scary at the same time. I remember thinking, uh-oh, 
um, oh no. And I was saying to myself, oh no, you're the one who calmed the sea. You're the one who, you're the one who healed the blind. You're the one that spoke creation into existence. I knew all these things about God, but all of a sudden I was caught into, into experiencing his presence in a certain way. And I don't say this to you that you would go looking for these kinds of things, that you would go trusting in these kinds of things, but I say this to you that I experienced both fear and joy at the same time. And I, I think that's what these women were experiencing, only on a much greater level. They're experiencing joy. We have to imagine them experiencing joy. Jesus is what? He's what? He's alive. But then the holiness of this angel is frightening with his dazzling apparel, his, his, his purity of this angel. So they're both frightened. But little do they know what's just ahead. In verse 9, behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. They had no idea they were going to meet him. Look what happens. They, they take hold of his feet and they worship him. Assuming Jesus is standing, and we have no reason to assume otherwise that Jesus is standing, how do you take hold of someone's feet when they're standing? You've got to bow down, don't you? I, I think I see the, the, these women laying down face first on the ground, holding Jesus' feet where they would see the actual holes in his feet where he was nailed to the cross. And they're worshiping him. And Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my what? What's the text say? Go and tell my what? Go and tell my brothers. Go and tell who? Go and tell my brothers. I think it's Mark. It says, go and tell my brothers and Peter. Go and tell my brothers and Peter to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. These are amazing words. Notice it doesn't say, go and tell that bunch that went running off and left me alone with these soldiers and left me out here to die by myself. Yeah, go gather all them up. Tell them I'm going to meet them in Galilee. And you wait until I get to Galilee to see these characters. It's not what he says, is it? What's he desire? He desires to be with his brothers who deserted him. Oh, yeah, you can bring Peter along, too. What's the significance of that? Hey, Peter, I know he denied me once, so come to think of it, he denied me twice. You know he denied me three times. That's not what he says, is it? This is amazing grace here. So off they go, off the women go. In the meantime, we come to verse 11. While the women were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city. And we have to imagine this guard, their faces are probably about as white as your bulletin, you know, having just seen that angel and having been paralyzed. They've had a rough day. Uh, they go back to the chief priests and they have to tell them all that has taken place. Verse 12, the chief priests assemble with the elders and they take counsel. Now, there's something interesting about all this. They decide to raise up a sufficient sum of money and give it to the soldiers, and then they manufacture this lie. Uh, here, here's this money. We want you to tell, um, tell everybody that the disciples came and stole the body uh, while you guys were asleep. And uh, don't be worried about the governor. 
Uh, we'll take care of the governor if he should ask any questions. Why would the governor care? Well, if, if, these, Roman, if these Roman guards were asleep, it could cost them their lives, actually. And we kind of wonder here. There's something missing here. The guards are never reprimanded. Which means they had to have realized that something miraculous has taken place. Not all the guards go back to the chief priest. These guys have been scared out of their wits. Members of the most powerful army in the world, scared out of their wits. By what? We read of no investigation on behalf of the Sanhedrin. We read of no investigation on behalf of the chief priests. We read of no, no question whatsoever. They take counsel together. Wouldn't you think they'd be saying, well, wonder, man, something must have took place at that grave. What is it? Maybe we better figure out what it is. No, let's get some money together and let's bribe the guard. Here's a real snapshot of the unbelieving heart here. I used to think that coming to saving faith and, and Jesus Christ was a philosophical issue. A long time ago, I believed it was a philosophical issue. In fact, in the store, there were people that used to call me a philosopher. They didn't know what else to call me. I thought it was a philosophical issue. It's not a philosophical issue. It's a moral issue. We don't believe because we don't want to believe. These men won't believe, not because the facts aren't available to them. They're not believing because they don't want to believe. I don't want Jesus messing around with my thing I got going on here. We can't have Jesus messing around with our thing here. He's got to go. Here, take this money, circulate you you were asleep, and uh, uh, we'll take care of the governor. If, we'll take care of the governor if uh, he says anything. Don't worry about it. Let's start putting all this together. Let's do what's been done in every generation since these things have happened. We have this attempt here to try to keep Jesus in the tomb. Do we not? It's a silly attempt to seal up the grave, keep Jesus in their, in their minds where he belongs. Of course, Jesus rises from the dead. And having rose from the dead, now there's an attempt to smear the truth of the resurrection. What's going on? What is being accomplished by these sinister plots? They're all working together for the good. Actually, each step of the way, it, it only serves to strengthen the resurrection story. Imagine the resurrection story if there had been no guard posted. It doesn't fall apart. Our faith is not in an empty tomb. Our faith is in a risen Savior. The story is still intact, but it's strengthened by the fact that there was a guard out there, that the tomb was sealed. And let's, let's for a moment, let's just play, play prosecuting attorney with, 
with this, this, the, the, the guards. We'll say the captain of the guard. We'll call him Mr. Centurion. And we'll play prosecuting attorney with Caiaphas, the high priest. You know, you can almost imagine it going this way. You know, we're investigating these things. We call the centurion to the stand. Uh, Mr. Centurion, your testimony is that you were asleep uh, and that the disciples, um, they broke into the grave and they took the body of Jesus. Is that correct? Yes, that's, that's correct. We were, um, to our shame, we were asleep. Uh, okay, so they, they, they found you asleep. They, they unsealed the stone. While you were asleep, they rolled the stone away. Uh, we're just not clear about something. Did they unravel the clothes off of Jesus' body there at the graveside and neatly stack them inside the tomb? Or, or did they carry the body away first and then come back with the grave linens? Well, I, um, um, uh, I haven't really thought about that. Uh, um, I guess I don't know. Well, of course, Mr. Centurion, you don't know because your testimony is you were asleep. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that is correct. Okay, well, if you were asleep, how do you know that it was the disciples who came and unrivaled the stone? Well, uh, I guess, uh, I, guess I, 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 I don't know. What? Speak up. The court can't hear you. I guess I, I, I can't be sure at all. How do you know that an angel didn't appear, as the women have said? And how do you know that Jesus didn't rise on his own? Your testimony is you were asleep. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, no more questions for the centurion. We now call Caiaphas to the stand. Uh, Mr. Caiaphas, um, your testimony is that um, you went to Pilate. You're pretty anxious about the fact that Jesus had made this promise that he would rise from the dead. Uh, you, you go to Pilate, and uh, you even went on the Sabbath. Is that correct? Yes, um, uh, works of, uh, works of uh, mercy and necessity are lawful on the Sabbath. Uh, we were doing nothing unlawful. Okay, so this was a really necessary thing that you did. Is that correct? Uh, you, you better believe it's necessary. All these fraudulent claims by this one Jesus of Nazareth. We wanted to be sure that he was sealed up in the tomb. We were trying to stop this very thing that was happening. Okay, Mr. Caiaphas, so it's very important to you that that tomb be sealed. Is that correct? It was of utmost importance to us. So it was important to you that a guard be posted out in front, right? It was very important that a guard be posted out front. Well, Mr. Caiaphas, your testimony is that your guards, your guys all fell asleep. Yes, uh, that's, uh, that's correct. That's what they did. Mr. Caiaphas, we're kind of confused about something. Why have not formal charges been brought against the guard who was sleeping on their post? Is there any credence to the rumors that are circulating around that you paid these guys off? I do not, uh, I do, I do not wish to comment on that. You see where this is going? Every generation since has done this. Has, People who are thinking this thing through, people who are looking at this thing, you see, this, you see the credibility of the resurrection. And behind it, you can see the, the evil that's trying to take this story and trying to stamp this story under its feet, to try to take the truth that uh, Jesus Christ is alive under their feet. Why? Why? What is the significance? What is so important about this story? What is so important? Sometimes people will ask me why I would be so arrogant as to say 
that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Sometimes people say, why do you Christians say, why, why are you so, why, why do you think that you're right and all of these other religions are wrong? That's what you believe, isn't it? Of course we say yes. Well, how can you make such claims? Here's my answer. The resurrection. The resurrection. Write these verses down. A couple of verses for you. You don't, need to, you don't need to look at them this morning. Just write a couple of verses down and I'll close. First one comes from 1 Peter. Just write down 1 Peter 1.3. The resurrection of Christ proves that all of His words, all of His sayings, all of His promises... All of his claims are legit. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection validates all of this. The next one, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. Of course, Paul's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about the resurrection bodies. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. In other words, if Christ has not been raised, then there's been no atonement made for sins. And if there's been no atonement made for sins, well, guess what? The whole thing comes toppling down. But Apostle Paul goes on to say, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Here's another verse for you, Romans 1.4. Romans 1.4. Just write that down and look at it this afternoon. In Romans 1.4, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by what? His resurrection from the dead. The resurrection proves that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And one other, and this one, this glorious one. They're all glorious, but listen to this one. This comes from Romans 6 and verse 5. It picks up where we left off last week. Romans 6, 5. The Apostle Paul says, For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Each one of these verses is a sermon. I'm giving it to you quickly. But this last one, this last one points our hopes towards our own resurrection. Christ's resurrection is a type. It points, it's the archetype of our very own resurrection where we will receive these bodies that will be perfect. That's a great and glorious promise, isn't it? Especially as some of our bodies begin to weaken and tire and fail. All things they do work together for the good, and especially these things. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you. We do praise you for this truth. We thank you and praise you, O Father, that you've been pleased, O Lord, to give us this truth. And O Father, we, we do pray that you'd be pleased to help us to really digest it. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. And amen.